Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Man, for me, this, uh, this sermon series has just been a lot of fun. I've really just enjoyed sort of digging deep into the story. And I had this vision at the beginning that uh, my good friend and colleague Brett Flanders and I would bust a lot of other myths uh, during this season. But our production crew, camera crew, editors, they got really busy with that really unconventional Christmas special. And by the way, that was one piece of it you just saw. That was done by uh, Nicole Nikki Sprung. She did the poetry and Louis, her husband, did all the artwork and uh, that was, people have been asking, that was Scott Flanders uh, doing the Grinchy reading. We all knew he was a Grinch. It works. And, uh, and I, I just think that piece is remarkable and has a life beyond uh, that special. But anyway, everyone got really busy, and that kept us from sort of getting to these manger myths and some other myths, too. But finally this week, we had a gap, we had an opportunity, and so, uh, so Brett, I asked uh, him to come up with an idea, and I said, hey man, let's, let's bust a myth. And so uh, let, me just, let me just show you what happened, so watch and enjoy. Please, don't try this at home. We are trained professionals. We have minutes of experience that help keep us safe. Who are the Mythbusters? Jim Bauckham. Brett Flanders. Between them, more than five minutes of special effects experience. So, uh, Brett, uh, what are we going to test today? Well, have you ever heard of the myth that You can set a Christmas tree on fire just by putting too many lights on it. Not only do I hear it, you read all these newspaper articles, you know, Christmas trees cut on fire. Is that because of the lights, right? That's true. I don't know. So I think we're going to have to first lay down some uh, some ground rules here. All right. So first we got to find which Christmas lights get the hottest. And then we're also going to have to have a Christmas tree that's really dry. You think we can find one? Give me a second. Okay. All right. Oh, uh, that is a dry tree. Yeah. That's, that's vintage. This tree isn't dry enough. I don't know what is. All right. So, so if this tree won't catch up, not going to happen. No. So let's get this thing put on some lights on it and see what happens. All right. We'll be back. All right. So these lights have been on here now for a half an hour. Let's see what it's measuring on the... Temperature. It's a lot of lights clustered together right there. Eh? My wife would never let you do this, but if you did this. Yeah, this is not very artistic either. Uh, eh. It's still only showing 60 degrees on the tree. Now it's a little cold today, so that's not surprising. I think we can add some more lights. I think we're gonna have to. It's 60 degrees. We got white lights. They were close enough. Let's add some more lights. All right, let's do it. That's a lot of lights, Brett. Uh, yeah, I, I think based on the number of boxes, that's about 700 lights. Yeah, I can feel the heat. Yeah, it's actually kind of nice out here. I can feel the heat coming off of those bulbs. Well, ooh, yeah, we are into the uh, almost 100 degrees inside there. 
that's definitely going up, but 100 degrees is a long way to go before you get to what'll actually burn wood. Yeah, yeah, even dry wood. So I think we're gonna have to call this one busted. What do you think? Uh, it's busted. I mean, first of all, who, who would do this? Whose wife would let them do this? So artistically. And secondly, if you did do this, you know, that's just not enough heat. You don't get to the flash point of yeah, that wood. Yeah. Even dry wood. So, so uh, we're gonna call this one busted. It's busted. But if you've watched Mythbusters, you know that you also have to replicate the result. So I was thinking about how we could do that. And well, you know, I, I, I do have an aerospace engineering degree. Yeah, so right. Rocket scientist, you like to say. What if I decided at home that I was gonna use rocket engines to decorate my tree? I like it. That sounds like a plan? I like it. Let's I like do it. that. I like it. Let's do it. Okay, so this is a C60 model rocket engine. Very dangerous. Again, trained professionals, minutes of experience. Don't even try this at work. Yeah, don't do this at home, kids. Um, we're gonna put this under the tree, light it off, see what happens. Let's do it. But always, safety first. Safety first. All right, what do we got? Okay, here's lighting a Christmas tree with a rocket engine in three, two, one. Oh! Whoa! Oh! Jeez. I, I, I will tell that once that thing does get oh, rolling. Okay. Maybe we should put that it out. It goes up fast. Let's put that out. <laughs> Let's put that out. Don't let it Oh, there. Fire stickers is not working. <laughs> <laughs> that one shot was all it had. Okay. This was not a good idea. All right, so so lights lighting up a tree. Uh, I think that's busted. So uh, yeah, what did we what did we prove here? Well, I think we proved that if you you have a rocket engine, you put it in the right place next to the Christmas tree. Now that may be able to light your tree on fire. But we do want to say that there are a lot of Christmas tree fires every year. It, it, maybe part of it you saw there is we actually uh, broke one light and it created a little puff of smoke. So. Other parts like little electrical shorts can cause and do cause lots of fire, so be safe out there. Oh my goodness, so much fun. What a couple of goobers those are. Anyway, that, that was, I, that, you should have just actually seen us making it. It was so hilarious. But, you know, our idea here was to take a popular idea, a popular myth of Christmas, and to, to see if it were true, to bust it. And there are a lot of things that we know about Christmas that are absolutely true. But then there are some things that we, we sort of fill in the blanks with. We mythologize Christmas a little bit. And, and it's, it's not that, that that's a big deal, but it, it really keeps us perhaps from seeing the deeper miracle of Christmas, what really is happening. So what I've been presenting to you is that the popular version of Christmas is a literary composite. We pull bits and pieces of it from across the scriptures, mostly 
from Matthew and Luke and their birth narratives. We pull them into pieces, and then when there's something missing, when there's something that's not there, I showed you, for example, last week how much theology or how many facts, really, about the Christmas story we get from just one verse in the Gospel of Luke. And when we can't figure out the rest, we sort of fill in the blanks because that's what we do as human beings. That's what our imaginations are capable of. And so when we do that, we come up with this literary composite. And what I suggest to you is that much of what we assume about Christmas is either untrue or unfounded, or at the very least unimportant. And and I think I I can say that the debate over this is not near as significant as that we don't sort of make Christmas about these things. In fact, my suggestion to you is that we get really caught up in the who, what, when, where, and how of Christmas. That we really want to know the facts. You know, uh, probably that for the first time since the 1600s, there is sort of a particular alignment coming this evening of two planets. You'll be able to see it uh, with your bare eyes. You'll be able to to see this thing happen. It's really incredible. And, And there's been a lot of speculation that maybe the star of Bethlehem was something like that. Maybe even the alignment of three planets. And that's certainly feasible. It's certainly possible. But in some ways, I think when we we try to take these things that we see in the Christmas story and we try to make them scientific by nature, what we tend to do is to miss the truth that is being revealed. That is what the author really wants us to know, what they really want us to see. And what happens is we, as scientific creatures in a scientific era, we tend to go straight to the who, what, when, where, and how, and we tend to think they matter most. And I can promise you, whether you were to ask Matthew, whether you were to ask Luke, or whether today you ask John, that one's busted. That's absolutely not true for any of those who are telling the story. And any of the ways they package it are really about something much bigger and bolder than that. So let's try this one. What matters most is the why of the incarnation, and that one is confirmed. It is absolutely confirmed. Now, this is really a big deal, I think, because the reason we should celebrate Christmas and we should enjoy Christmas, love Christmas so much, is because of the amazing why of the incarnation. That is, we can, we can talk all day long about how two, two people who were faithful to God, I, I think just Two plain old people, a man and a woman who were betrothed to be married, engaged to be married, really in their tradition were already married. You have to understand that. And they they have this remarkable thing happen at the hands of the Holy Spirit. And it's really not about Joseph or Mary or shepherds or anything else. In each of the stories, it's about what God is up to. It's about what God is doing. And in the same way, I think we have to look forward to, to this day. And we tend to get really caught up in the who, what, when, and where of a situation instead of asking the theologian's question and the Christian's question, why? Why is it happening and what is God doing in the midst of this? And in 2020, I think we've somehow got to get ourselves out of what's going on, out of the the, the milieu of this situation, and we've got to get ourselves into asking, what is God up to in this moment? And the Christmas story really should help us to do that. So what matters most is the why of the incarnation. Why would God, 
Why would the divine creator, the eternal creator of the universe, why would he come to the world he created in human form? Now, part of the reason the story reads the way it was is it's not at all what God's people expected. What they expected was for a human ruler to emerge in the line of David, like King David, to reunite God's people in Israel and to reestablish them. It was about them. It was about political power. It was about wealth. It was about fame. It was about all the things we tend to get caught up into. And God did it in a completely different way. And he said through the prophets that he would, but they missed it. Because it's really easy to miss what God is doing when you take your own expectations about what God should do and you imprint them on the story. That's what we do in many ways when we look back at the Christmas story and that's what we do in many ways when we look at our own lives and that's what we do when we look at the future. We tend to take what we want to have happen, our own expectations, and to ask that God would cause our dreams to come true exactly as we see them. Now, of course, the amazing thing is that what God was really doing in the incarnation was so much more amazing and more incredible than anything that could have been imagined by God's people before Jesus came. So many people rejected him and missed the greatest thing that ever happened on planet Earth, the most amazing thing since creation, because they would have preferred that what they expected happen than what God wanted to cause would happen. I'll give that some thought because I think the application to our lives is really direct. Nonetheless, I'll tell you, it's not so important that you get the Christmas story right as that you get it at all. That you don't get caught up in symbols that mean something about your spirits, about the way that you feel, about your celebration in all the everything of Christmas that you missed the reason why we use these symbols. I love a quote by G.K. Chesterton. I don't know how many of you know Chesterton. I read him a lot. He's a great Catholic scholar of yesteryear. I don't know anybody who is more prolific than Chesterton. He just wrote a lot, and he wrote a lot about Christmas. And Chesterton wrote this piece that I think fits what we're talking about here. He says, all ceremony depends on symbol. Now, we love symbol. I mean, we're wired for symbol. We really are. So all ceremony depends on symbol, and all symbols have been vulgarized and made stale by the commercial conditions of our time. And by the way, that was a past time, and if what he said was true then, it is far more true today than it was in Chesterton's day. Of all these faded and falsified symbols, he continues, the most melancholy example is the ancient symbol of the flame or of light that we're going to talk about today. In every civilized age and country, it has been a natural thing to talk of some great festival in which the town was illuminated. There is no meaning nowadays in saying the town is illuminated. The whole town is illuminated already, but not for noble things. It is illuminated solely to insist on the immense importance of trivial and material things, blazoned from motives entirely mercenary. It has not destroyed the difference, though, 
between light and darkness. It has allowed the lesser light to put out the greater. Our streets are in permanent dazzle, and our minds are in permanent darkness. I love that closing piece. Our streets are in permanent dazzle, and our minds are in permanent darkness. What Chesterton was saying is that we go so far out of our way to create false illumination that we may miss the glimmer of light in the midst of it all that comes from God and symbolizes God. And that's precisely what happened when Jesus came to the world, and it's precisely what still happens today. That said, there is nothing wrong and everything right about celebrating the presence of light in darkness at Christmas. And I trust whatever you do at Christmas, that's really what it's all about. Now, nobody helps us more here than John. And turning to John is a bit odd in this situation because I think all scholars would say John does not include, include a birth narrative in his gospel. And, and for that matter, neither does Mark, the first gospel. Mark writes his gospel. Matthew comes in and fills in some of the blanks of the birth of Jesus in order to project his, his prophetic ideas to the Jewish people. And along comes Luke speaking to a Greek audience, and Luke wants to talk about science and Greek philosophy and all the things that Jesus, he believes, fulfills too. And so he speaks those things into the story. And then much later comes John. John, more than anyone else, I think, (coughs) helps us to understand why we celebrate Christmas the way we do and what the real theology of the incarnation is all about. Christmas is about the incarnation of God in human form. In fact, all all of theology, all of the Gospels, all of the Bible is run through, shot through with this notion of God becoming incarnate in the person of Jesus. So let's take a look at John. By the way, I thought this was going to be the last sermon in this series, but just because of details and things that happened, I've got one bonus sermon for you in the Manger Myth series next week. But John would have been a great way to close because John just gives us this brilliant theology. Let's look at John's agendas. If we understand what Matthew was trying to accomplish and we know what Luke was trying to accomplish, what is John trying to accomplish? The first thing I think we can say is that John was seeking to complement the synoptic gospels. He wanted people to see the full story. Have you ever been with a couple, a husband and a wife, or even a larger family, and one of them began to tell the story? And the other felt that the way the story was being conveyed or relayed was not complete in form or fashion, perhaps even not accurate. And so the other starts to interject and insert and to tell part of the story. And I've even been around people where eventually the other one says, do you want to tell this story? And one of two things happens at that moment. The other person says, no, you go ahead. That's most common. But recently, before the pandemic, right before it, we were with a couple, and and the, the man said to the wife, in this case, do you want to tell the story? And she says, yes, as a matter of fact, because I, I'll get it right. She told the story. John comes 20 or 30 years after the other gospel writers, I think. Now, look, we can't be sure about this. They're actually 
A couple of arguments, not many, for what we call the primacy of John. That is, it might have been written first. I don't think there's any chance of that, frankly. I think the textual uh, criticism would prove that, but I also think historically that the ideas John incorporates for the benefit of the church are clearly a little later. And, and so John doesn't make any secret of that. I mean, he's telling the story in a way that will have meaning to what the church has become, quite Greek, quite philosophical, quite complex in theology by the time John comes along. So what we believe is Mark's gospel is first, maybe sometime in the 60s, and then after John uh, comes either Luke or Matthew. We're not sure which. We think that both Luke and Matthew had Mark in their hands as they wrote, then added the pieces they knew had Mark had not told that helped people that were reading them understand, and then along comes John. And John doesn't seek to fill in any of the details, really, except in the final week of Jesus' life, because most of the Gospel of John is about the final week of Jesus' life. I don't think most people realize this, but it's true. And so he wants people to know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's his most important piece. But what he really wants to do is to put a theological wrapper around the whole thing. Most of us believe that John was the last apostle to die on the island of Patmos, And he wanted to make sure that all the story was out there before he finished his task. So he wants to complement the synoptic gospels, the ones that see things the same. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Second thing he wants to do is to trace the incarnation back to the creation or the beginning. The Bible begins in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God. And how does John begin his gospel? In the beginning, word. In the beginning, word. So it's like he's taking Genesis and he's casting it forward through Jesus. And there's a reason for that. Because John needs us to understand that only the one who created us can redeem us. Only the one who created us can recreate us. And the gospel of John is a beautiful story of recreation. Right up until the point, after the resurrection, when, remember, Jesus comes back to his apostles, he comes into a closed room, and he says to them, receive now the Holy Spirit. And then John tells us, he breathed on us, because he was there. He breathed on them. What was he doing? How did God create human beings? He took the clay of the ground and he blew into it the breath of life and it became a a living nephesh, a living soul, a living being, and that's what we are. And so when Jesus gave his own breath, the breath of God, which is what inspired means, by the way, God breathed. He breathes life, new life, into the apostles and and into us. If you understand this about John, you can see that the whole story is a recreation story, right? So that means that from the very beginning of his gospel, that's his agenda. And so we'll look at that in a moment. Third, he wants to explain the why of the incarnation. In fact, I'm almost tempted to say, this might be a little too much, but I'm almost tempted to say that John doesn't care about the who, what, when, where, or how of the incarnation except for the person of Jesus. What he does care about is the why, the theology of the whole thing. What was God up to? What was God doing? In fact, we know that 1 John was written by the same author as John. So this is the gospel writer. And in his letter, 1 John, he gives us a magnificent synopsis of his whole gospel. In John, 1 John 4, 9. 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. One simple sentence really tells the whole story of John's gospel. Now, there are some features that you should notice about the gospel of John. First of all, his Greek is erudite. I, I will tell you this for sure. If you ever take a class in Greek, John will not be the first thing you translate. It is almost as difficult to translate as one or two other books. It's one of the most difficult books to translate in the entire New Testament, and that's because John's Greek is pristine. It is beautiful. It is lovely. It is poetic, and capturing the poetic part of it, the poetry of it all, is sometimes difficult. So we read John and we say, well, all of that Greek philosophy, which you're going to see, and all of that erudite Greek, clearly John must be speaking to the Greco-Roman church in the same way Luke was. But no. John, unlike Luke, incorporates really, really intense Jewish theology and Jewish ideology. So I think John's speaking to the whole church as if to say this is the last gospel you're going to get. This is the final piece by one of the apostles. And as you get this, here are the things the whole church needs to know about the incarnation of God in human form in Jesus. Secondly, I think John probably wrote this book about 90 AD from the island of Patmos. Not long before, perhaps, he wrote Revelation, perhaps even after he did. I'm not sure. But whatever the case may be, I think there is plausible argument that John is the one who's writing this and that he's in his final days as he's writing. By the way, if you ever go to the Bible Museum and you see the New Testament display, the very first part is John writing his gospel, this part of the gospel, and it's really amazing and beautiful. Thirdly, the very beginning of John's gospel is a hymn. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars about this poetry and from whence it might have come. It certainly contains some very Greek philosophic ideas, but clearly is not Greek. It clearly is a theology. It clearly is a presentation of who Jesus was. So many say, you know, this might have been a hymn of the church. And John may have been inviting the church into the story of the incarnation by sharing with them something that they learned. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. How much of your theology have you learned through hymns and songs? And the answer is a lot. I can also tell you you've learned some bad theology through some hymns and songs, but you've learned some really beautiful and good theology too. And that was true of the early church because, remember, many people were illiterate, even in Greco-Roman culture. So what they heard and sang and memorized was really significant and important. This Logos hymn, though, contains really important Greek philosophy. And finally, John's concern is with chirology and not chronology. Now, let me tell you what chirology is. Chirology is drawn from the word kairos. It is another word in Greek for time, chronos being the one we're familiar with. So, you know, chronos, you know that word already. You understand that that probably means time, chronology, whatever the case may be. The chronos is the actual movement of minutes and seconds and hours and days. It is, is the actual timing of a thing. But chirology is God's qualitative time. And God doesn't work in the same way we do. He is above and beyond time. And what he is accomplishing has a much longer scope than what 
we understand time to be. So sometimes we miss it. We're in the middle of it. We're right in the place. But God shows up at exactly the right time. Or as Paul said in Galatians 4, at just the right time Christ came and died for us. At just the right moment. And that's the kind of chirology that John deals with. Again, most of the book of John is the very end of Jesus' life. Just a little bit of it is anything before. So this amazing gospel, John, is my very favorite. Is it yours too? I have people tell me, I really prefer this gospel or that gospel. I really love the gospel of John. And every Christmas Eve, and man, I'm going to get weepy thinking about this, I stand right here and go to that wreath, and I, I use the gospel of John as the context for that entire worship experience and, and extinguish and relight those candles with the words from the gospel of John. And I'm going to do that again from my home this year, and you're going to be there with me, 5 o'clock Christmas Eve, and I want to be virtually in your home, and I want to talk in a moment about how significant and important that is. Now, let's just read this incredible theology from the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, 9 through 14, and 16 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now just pause for a second before we go further and think about that paragraph. It's beauty. It's majesty. It's splendor. This is one amazing paragraph of Scripture. Even if we only had one line of it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, one thing you need to know is by the time John is writing, everybody knows the great Greek philosophers, and some of you have studied them and know them too. And one thing that was common to Greek philosophy was this notion that there was something called logos, a kind of a wisdom that is eternal. And that Logos was forever. It, it had always been and it always would be. And John wants his readers to know that Logos you've been studying about, that thing that is eternal, that in fact is Jesus. That is Christ. It is the creative force of God. It is the second person of the Trinity eternally existent, that's what you've been studying and you didn't even know it. In the beginning was the Word, but listen, that's not all. The Word was with God. In fact, the Word was God. Now, if you remember our series on Trinitatis, Trinity, the beauty of this is just astonishing, astounding, can barely be captured in words, and yet somehow I think John does it better than anyone else. See, he was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Nothing was made without him. And therefore, the life that we know is in him. He's the only one that can redeem us. Then he changes a little bit his, his idea, his notion here, his mental picture. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and popped his tent, literally, in our campground. The word became flesh and made his dwelling in our neighborhood, among us. Just think how amazing, how incredible. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Just think about this amazing truth that God came to us, took the initiative, took our form, knows everything about us. I've had a lot of great mentors in my life, and you know, besides character and capability, What makes a mentor great is two things, and that is, one, that they are where you'd like to be, and two, that they were where you are. They are where you'd like to be, and they were where you are. They identify with you. So God is where we want to be. He is what we want to be. He's everything in nature and character that forever we'd like to be like. And so he comes to us because we can't go to him in human form, and lives among us, full of grace and truth. Karl Barth tried to capture it this way. Karl Barth, one of the great theologians of the modern church, wrote this, the nativity mystery conceived from the Holy Spirit and born from the Virgin Mary means that God became human, truly human out of his own grace. The miracle of the existence of Jesus His climbing down of God is Holy Spirit and Virgin Mary. Here is a human being, the Virgin Mary, and as he comes from God, Jesus comes also from this human being. Born of the Virgin Mary means a human origin for God. Jesus Christ is not only truly God, he is truly human like every one of us. He is human without limitation. He is not only similar to us, he is like us. It's just so remarkable to talk about the incarnation. John's mind was blown by it. But, you know, almost 2,000 years later, our minds are still blown by the incarnation in such a way we can barely put it into words. We can't even do it as well as John did. We can just read his words, and we look for symbolism and, and I think John gives us a picture of how we would celebrate Christmas in the future. People in a darkened world would look for a glimmer of light, and they would find it in Jesus. And over time, they would light candles and light Advent wreaths, decorate trees, sing carols, 
celebrate in a season of darkness. The winter solstice is Monday, a season of light, the incarnation of God in human form in the world. They would find the light in Jesus, and they would seek to capture it in the way they celebrated. And those Christians who started doing that across the years would make it look like so much fun that everyone around them would join in too and even add to the festivity. So is it okay for us to celebrate light and darkness confirmed? Keep doing it. Just remember what it really means. Teach what it really means. Talk about what it really means. People in a darkened world find light in Jesus Christ. And our celebration of Christmas is about mystery, not myth. There's a big difference. Mystery. Talking about things we don't fully capture or know, right? Speaking about things we can't fully understand. Trying to understand this mystery that God took human form in order to redeem us and recreate us. I guess John captures it best himself, John 3, 16 and 17. And then chapter 20 through 2031 at the conclusion of his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John concludes these signs. They're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in him. Listen, friends, this is the miracle of Christmas. And it is the miracle of Christmas because it is the miracle of Good Friday and Easter. It is that God loved the world so much He sent His one and only Son to the world He created to give you life. And if you have it, you can't help but celebrate. That's no myth. That's no myth. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask, first of all, that anyone hearing my voice today that needs to see the light of Christ in the midst of darkness would contemplate and understand the power of your love. And Father, I know that some of those people are, are followers of Jesus who've fallen away or who have forgotten the mystery of it all. And I know others are persons who have never decided to have a relationship with their heavenly Father as an adopted child through their brother Jesus who was sent to redeem them. And so I ask that you would give them the hope of Christmas and that they would be able to offer their life to you and receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Receive his forgiveness in the cross, his recreation in the empty tomb, and therefore casting backward, Christmas becomes an unfathomable mystery. Father, abide with us in this season, we pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Columbia, I love you. I miss you. I'm praying for you. Merry Christmas. You go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world, and I'll see you soon.
Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.